When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Out front next, we are following several breaking stories this hour. The Supreme Court agrees to weigh in on whether Trump is immune from criminal charges related to January 6th. It's the heart of Trump's defense. Is the DOJ's case now in trouble? Also breaking right now, Trump on the hook for $454 million. The clock is ticking because a New York court has just ruled that he cannot get out of putting up the full amount. And Trump is saying he does not have the money. We'll give all of you the details. And inside Putin's decision to use nuclear weapons, the Financial Times tonight obtaining secret Russian intelligence documents showing Putin could resort to using nukes just to stop, quote, aggression. It is a stunning report. The reporter who broke it will be out front. So let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, the breaking news. The Supreme Court takes up Trump's case. The nation's highest court tonight saying justices will hear Trump's argument that he has absolute immunity for crimes he allegedly committed in office. In the one-page order, it's just one page, it's very clear to the point, the court writes uh, that this is the key question that they'll answer. Quote, whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? Look, nothing matters more than this case before the Supreme Court. Now, this is a major decision. This one page is a major decision because the court could have simply said that it would not take up the case and simply let the lower court decision stand, something that would have been totally standard in a case where three judges had ruled unanimously and very narrowly that Trump was not immune. But that is not what the Supreme Court has done tonight. And the bottom line of this ruling, that they're going to hear the case, means delay. The Supreme Court will not even hear the case until the end of April. And that means if the court rules against Trump and the Justice Department's January 6th case against Trump goes ahead, it will begin later. It will begin later. And every day matters in the countdown to Election Day, whether there even is a full trial and a verdict by Election Day. The immunity claim now before the Supreme Court is at the core and the heart of the Justice Department's case against Trump. Because if Trump uh, is immune from prosecution, from acts committed while he was president, then Jack Smith's case is over, done. And Trump's lawyers have argued that he is immune from Smith's criminal charges because even if Trump had ordered the military to assassinate a political rival, they say, if he did it while he was president, he couldn't be prosecuted. Of course, the three judges in the scathing rebuke from the lower court rejected Trump's argument. But now the Supreme Court's nine justices will have the final say. And how the justices decide could have a profound impact on this election. Former Trump White House attorney Ty Cobb is standing by. First, though, I want to go to Evan Perez because he's out front live in Washington. Uh, Evan, we just get this one page. Uh, Many had expected uh, that the court would just not take this up, right, and and just let that lower court decision stand. That's not what they've done. What do you know about why? What do you know about how? Obviously, they they took their time to make this decision. Uh, What do you know? 
Right. In this order, Aaron, they make clear that they're not making any judgments on the merits of the case. But what we know from this is the fact that it takes five justices to grant this stay, which is something that they did. Uh, and that means that there's five justices who at least uh, are trying to help Donald Trump, uh, or at least uh, agreeing to help uh, buy Donald Trump more time, which is, after all, the entire strategy uh, by the Trump campaign and the legal strategy also uh, by the former president, which is to buy time and to delay both of these trials, both of these federal trials, till after the November election. And so with the fact that uh, the, the justices took, you know, at least three weeks to, to make this decision, they could have, you know, made this decision and issued this order any time in the last three weeks. They waited this three weeks and they've decided that they're not going to hear oral arguments at least for another couple of months. Uh, it tells us that the, 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 the effort by the Justice Department to try to get this case uh, heard as quickly as possible because they said this was in the interests of the public, of the, of the, of the nation, for this, for this case to go to trial and for a decision to be rendered. It, it means that that will not happen anytime soon. Now, uh, it's not impossible, but what it means is that, you know, certainly by, by the analysis of, of Joan Biskupic, uh, we're looking at uh, a decision from the Supreme Court perhaps in June, and, and then, uh, you know, the, if you can get a, a trial restarted, the calendar is extremely crowded uh, by the time Donald Trump becomes presumably the Republican nominee. We should also note, uh, Aaron, that uh, the Supreme Court is also, we're still waiting to hear from them on the, uh, the 14th Amendment challenge uh, in Colorado, right? The, the, the right. ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court. So we widely, everyone expects that Donald Trump will win that case. So uh, at this point, we should point out also that the Supreme Court had the option, Aaron, to, uh, to, to hear this case. If they wanted to take this up, when Jack Smith went to them in December, they decided not to take it up then, but they have now decided that they do want to hear this case. And that, I mean, it, and that that putting the beginning timestamp on this of December that you're now looking right. at are arguments not being made until April and a decision in June, according to Jones analysis, that is stunning. A six month delay. If you look at right. it, just the, the bottom line of it. All right, Evan, thank you very much. As Evan gets more, we're going to go to him. I do want to go to Ty Cobb now, the former Trump White House lawyer. Ty, um, look, they could have said let the lower court ruling stand. Uh, it was unanimous. It was three justices. They took three weeks to say that they're not going to do that. They're actually going to hear this case and decide on the merits. Evan laying out that calendar that they could have made that decision in December. This puts a, a possible, uh, you know, a decision in, in June. Is there any way to see this other than as a win for Trump in his delay strategy? Well, I think it's I think it's certainly uh, favorable to Trump. You know, whether it's a win, I mean, Trump appealed, you know, as soon as he could. Um, you know, it's it, you know the issue of um, would the Supreme Court take it uh, always haunted uh, um, everybody, and um, you know it was they had to balance two things: uh, the interest that the um, D.C. Circuit uh, identified in getting that case to trial, and whether the opinion from the D.C. Circuit was adequate at the, from the Supreme Court's view on the issues that they've now asked to be briefed. And I think that, I think probably the most important signal they gave us as to why they granted cert is in the, in the question presented that you read, yep. is the phrase, to what extent? Uh, because Whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy immunity? Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's where the D.C. Court of Appeals opinion is a little bit light 
um, not because of any error that they made, but that they basically concluded, rightfully so, that the um, allegations in the indictment were way outside of wherever the line is, and they didn't draw a clear line. I think it's understandable for a Supreme Court, uh, for our Supreme Court, in a case of first impression involving not mm. a but the foundational principle of the Constitution, which is the separation of powers. Um, you know, would would want to you know take a ch take a shot at trying to draw that line if they can uh, before uh, a former president is tried. Um, however. Uh, I'm disappointed. I think uh, it would have been uh, possible for them to let that case, let that opinion stand, and we could have gone to trial in advance of the election, which I do think would have been in the interest of the country. But I do think this makes a, uh, a trial before the election unlikely. So uh, I, I guess, look, that's what I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, it appears to be that that's the bottom line, that if you're not going to have oral arguments till the week of April 22nd, uh, Joan Biskupic was saying that that would mean a, possibly a verdict in June. I don't, I don't know if, if, if you agree with that or not, but, but your bottom line is that that would mean you would not get, even if that happened and they rule that he's not immune, you would not have a verdict before Election Day. Uh, that's, yeah, that's my, well, I, I mean, I, so there are some, there are some, that, yes, that's, that is in essence my view, but there are some variables there. I mean, there is, yeah. So the Justice Department policy that everybody talks about, the so-called 60-day policy, right. you know, doesn't really apply in this circumstance. That's, that's, that's limited to um, you know, uh, issuing indictments and opening investigations. There's nothing about a trial in an already scheduled case. So there, it's conceivable um, that the case could be set for trial in September, could be set for trial in October, could be set for trial immediately after the election. Uh, but... Um, I think that I think the likelihood is that it's not going to uh, certain certainly in my view, it's not going to go to trial before the election. And just to be very clear on this, Ty, uh, if, it, if they set a date after the election and he wins, he is able to essentially end it. That's, that's that. correct. That's correct. Yeah, right. no, he would. Be, so, I mean, he may have to endure the trial, actually. I mean, you know, because he, he can't he, he, he won't have any powers until January 20th. Uh, so he could he could he may be forced to endure a trial. I, I still think that's just unlikely uh, if he's the uh, if he's the nominee and we'll be back up to the Supreme Court on on those issues. Uh, you know, when does when does the you know, imposition of uh, the criminal process become too great for a president to endure? Is it only after he takes the office or immediately after he's elected? I, I think that would I think those is, there are issues related to that, that I think would further delay the trial. All right, Ty, thank you very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Aaron. Take care. Thanks for having me. All right. Good to see you. And Karen Friedman Agnifilo is with me, the former prosecutor who worked with special counsel Jack Smith and Basil Smeichel, Democratic strategist. So, Karen, you know, you hear Ty going through the analysis of, of what this, this appears to mean, uh, that you're not going to get a verdict before Election Day. Uh, that's, that's, that seems to be the calendar here that we're now looking at. How do you even respond to this and, and what you see from the Supreme Court? I mean, look, the Jack Smith predicted this possibility, which is why he tried to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit and go straight to the Supreme Court Back months ago, if you recall. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And he said, OK, this is an important issue and timing matters here because 
if this doesn't go before the election, it might not ever go if Donald Trump wins the presidency because he appoints the new attorney general who could dismiss the case. He will pardon himself and the thousand other he will call patriots who have been prosecuted and convicted for January 6th. That includes people like Enrique Tarrio and Stuart Rhodes. And, and the case will go away. And so in some ways, the Supreme Court knew that, and yet they sent it to the D.C. Circuit and said, no, I want them to opine first. But now what they're saying is either they disagree or they changed their mind. I, I just don't understand why we had to go through this if we were going to go here to begin with, because this really means no trial before the election other than the Manhattan DA case, which was has been widely stated that is the least serious of them all. But now it's really the only case that will right. likely go uh, before the election. That's Alvin Bragg and the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. Karen, just a quick follow here to make a point. We we won't ever know, right, how the court voted on this. We know they needed a majority to decide to take the case up. But we have no, we don't know if they had unanimity. We don't know if it was uh, on, I don't want to use the word party lines, but on liberal and conservative lines. We're not going to know that, right? That's correct. We We don't know and we won't know. But but at least five people on the court, at least five justices, uh, want to hear want to hear this case, and and so the timing though of this is is really makes it so that that case will not go before the election. That that's that's I think my opinion, and and many other people who I've spoken to since this came down, uh, literally I think two hours ago. Exactly. So Basil, have you had time to process that? I mean, does this mean that Democrats have to stop hoping on a trial and a verdict? that could eliminate Trump, you know, even in the, eye, in the eyes of voters, right, who have said that a conviction yeah. uh, could mean, you know, would massively would change things up in terms of how they see Trump. Uh, does this mean that Democrats have to just, you know, essentially give that up? Well, it, it does change the strategy, right? Because I, my concern had always been that as these trials continue, that it was going to be difficult for Democrats to help voters weed through the legalese uh, as we continue to talk about what what what's happening in the in the courts and how close we are to getting some kind of uh, some kind of verdict or, or answer about how Trump, if at all, would be held accountable. So this just continues the time frame, or I should say, it expands the time frame in which Democrats are still going to have to continue to talk about what's happening, why Donald Trump is under investigation. By the way, pointing out that all of the folks who, and I heard Adam Schiff say this earlier, that uh, all of the folks who actually stormed the Capitol face justice, or or a good, a good amount of them have already faced justice. It's the leadership, it's the people who are pulling the strings that have yet to face that justice. And I think that's an important point that Democrats could need to continue to hammer home. And I'll just make this quick point. Uh, you know, I think I was on this this very network, Erin, in 2016 when the Comey letter dropped. So I have a very healthy uh, understanding of how right. important information, mm -hmm. when it comes out close to an election, can affect the outcome. Um, and so that's that's what's so concerning about this, that, as, as has been said before, uh, we could have had some kind of uh, decision on this a lot earlier. Uh, if you are concerned that the Supreme Court is being political, this just gave you additional uh, fuel for that concern. All right. Thank you both very much. I appreciate it. And next, we do have more breaking news. An Illinois judge has just ruled to remove Trump from the state's ballot. 
That is a surprise move. In the context of all of this, we are live with the latest details on that next. Plus today, Hunter Biden just wrapping up his testimony behind closed doors. The president's son grilled for more than six hours, even though Republicans admit that their efforts to impeach President Biden are falling apart. And Alexei Navalny's wife warning her husband's memorial service could turn violent if Putin tries to stop his supporters from showing up. We'll go live to Moscow tonight. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. All right, more breaking news. An Illinois judge has just ruled that Donald Trump should be kicked off the ballot in the state. The judge there in Illinois writing that Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot because of his actions on January 6th. That makes Illinois the third state, along with Colorado and Maine, to use the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban to remove Trump from the ballot. Of course, that 14th Amendment case in Colorado is in front of the Supreme Court as I speak, waiting for a decision. Caitlin Polans is out front with more on this breaking news. And Caitlin, the thing about Illinois is uh, we're sitting here talking about a major decision on immunity from the Supreme Court. And out of left field (laughs) comes this ruling from Illinois. This is a surprise move. What is the Illinois judge saying? It is. This is about Donald Trump and his ability to be on the ballot as a candidate because of what he did in the 2020 election after that election and on January 6th. This judge in Cook County, Illinois, is writing quite clearly her decision here that the Illinois State Board of Election shall remove Donald J. Trump from the ballot for the general primary election on March 19th, upcoming in a couple weeks, or cause any votes cast for him to be suppressed. Now, there's some things in this decision today that are going to put that on hold initially. But, Aaron, it's quite a clear decision. And this decision from Illinois, it hops on board of what the Colorado Supreme Court has already done and said, that case that now is up at the U.S. Supreme Court, where Colorado was that state through the court system, looked at the evidence around January 6th and deemed Donald Trump to be an insurrectionist and someone ineligible to be on the ballot for president. Illinois says exactly the same thing here. Okay, so now Illinois coming, and as I said, in a surprise move saying this, as this the, the broader question about the 14th Amendment in, in front of the Supreme Court. So what does this mean for that? What happens next, Caitlin? Aaron, Donald Trump's team is gonna need to move quickly to appeal That is the first thing that's laid out here. They have two days, according to this order, to get everything paused, having him removed from the ballot or having votes in the March 19th primary not counted for him. So they got to go to the appeals court in Illinois for two days. The state is going to continue to look at it. And then 
so much is at stake at the U.S. Supreme Court. They already are looking at what Colorado did to remove him from the ballot, how that could also f affect the third state that has removed Trump from the ballot, Maine. That wasn't in a judicial proceeding. That was by the people who oversee the elections there. But the U.S. Supreme Court is ultimately going to have to come down on is this something that states even can do in their primary elections? And would someone like Donald Trump potentially qualify? Is the office of the presidency something that is applicable when you're looking at the insurrectionist clause of the U.S. Constitution? So all of that is at stake here in this decision. It's not on hold waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to rule. So if they take a very long time and the Illinois state courts say, no, he can be removed from the ballot, then that may be it as far as their primary goes. But there is going to be all eyes on the Supreme Court and what they do and how quickly they do it, too. Aaron. All right. Thank you very much, Caitlin. I appreciate it. Uh, with, with all of this breaking developments, I want to go now to Eric Swalwell, uh, Democratic congressman, of course, from the state of California. Uh, congressman, this decision first here that just came out of Illinois was completely unexpected. Uh, today. Uh, so now you've got three states banning Trump from being on the ballot. The Colorado case is in front of the Supreme Court. They have yet to make a decision. Um, are you surprised to hear this decision from the judge in Illinois? Well, knowing the facts of the case, Aaron, and having been uh, on the floor when Donald Trump uh, incited and aimed the mob that paused the, the counting of the vote and led to the violence, uh, I'm not surprised that a judge would find that he's disqualified because he committed insurrection, which of course the Constitution says, if you do that, you can't be on the ballot. Uh, Aaron, I, I don't know uh, if your v viewers know this, but I was the only member who testified in the Colorado case. Uh, and I did that a little bit reluctantly because uh, I'm competitive and I want to beat Donald Trump and the idea of MAGA. And I want to do that this November because I think doing that uh, is the best reset uh, we can have for democracy. But a plain reading of the Constitution suggests that if you commit insurrection, and it, it seems you know, pretty clear that he did, that you can't be on the ballot. And so I look forward you know, to our Supreme Court resolving it. And however they decide, I will accept that uh, and we'll move to November. So they're going to decide that. And there had been some congressmen, and obviously you as being on the Judiciary Committee, as you say, testifying in the Colorado case, uh, attorney yourself. Uh, some had thought that they would pair the two decisions, that they would come out and maybe unanimously say that Trump actually should be allowed to be on the ballot and put that to the voters, therefore, uh, in Colorado. And at the same time, say, you know what, we don't need to hear the immunity case. We're going to let those three judges uh, decision that Trump is, is not immune from criminal prosecution stand. and We're going to let Jack Smith's case go ahead. They've not done that. Right. They have they've chosen not to do that. They took three weeks to make a decision in the immunity case. And now they're not hearing oral arguments till April 22nd. It appears very clear on the calendar that we're being given that that means that there will not be a verdict in the January 6th case before Election Day. Have you had a chance to process this? Uh, yes. And, and, and what this all tells me is that our system, our Constitution, our rule of law was not built uh, for a legal terrorist like Donald Trump. He is a professional litigant. He has been a part of thousands of cases uh, and he knows all of the tactics of uh, delay, delay, delay. And, you know, we're just not built, you know, to respond, you know, to someone who threatens our constitution, our democracy, our rule of law. But we have to accept whatever outcome. But that doesn't mean we're helpless, you know, to try and legislate and make sure in the future we're more responsive. So if there's an issue around the 14th Amendment and the process in place now, we should anticipate that someone may come along and try and do this again and put a process uh, that's better and put that process in place. 
Adam Schiff, my colleague on the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, sorry, that might have, been, might, might have been something else that you were hearing, but I do want to ask you yeah. something else, Congressman, and that is about yeah. where you spent your day today. I mean, there's, there's so <laughs> many developments here tonight yeah. in breaking news. Hunter Biden, uh, yeah. President Biden's son, emerged. He had six hours of testifying behind closed doors, right? He, he was forced by Republicans to sit for a deposition. This was all part of the Republican-led efforts to impeach President Biden. Uh, Republicans are now admitting that that effort is not moving forward. But you were there today. You were behind the closed doors for those six hours. What did you learn? Uh, nothing new. Uh, in fact, uh, this is the end of the impeachment uh, effort. I, I saw, you know, the, the time of death today because they have nothing uh, and I would be surprised if they brought this forward. But don't take that from me, Aaron. Take that from someone who was in the room on the Republican side. Daryl Issa described it as a big nothing. And so it's time to fund the government, fund Ukraine, the needs in the Middle East, uh, and take on the issues at the border uh, and what people really care about and what matter. But uh, there's nothing new here, just a continuation of not accepting Joe Biden as the president and cruelly trying to go after his son. All right. Thank you very much, Congressman Swalwell. I appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And next, our breaking news coverage continues. A judge ruling that Trump has to come up with the $454 million from his civil fraud trial. Trump was trying to avoid putting it up. He says he does not have the money. More details on that. And Biden's doctors tonight have come out and said he had a physical today and that the president is fit for duty. But there was no cognitive test. Why? You'll hear what the White House is saying. Welcome back. A lot of breaking developments tonight in the Donald Trump legal cases. A New York appeals court just ruling that Trump must pay the full $454 million to cover the verdict in the Trump org fraud trial. Rejecting an appeal by Trump today to only post $100 million, Trump arguing that it is, quote, impossible to pay the full amount. In fact, Trump's lawyers actually have gone into a court, into court filing, and saying that Trump could have to sell some of his properties to come up with the money. Well, keep in mind that he had said, right, that he had liquid assets that exceed the $454 million. So this would seem to indicate he only had a quarter of what he said he had. Out front now, Harry Sandick, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Jonathan Greenberg, an investigative journalist for The Washington Post, who has covered Trump's finances for years and says Trump had lied to him when he worked at Forbes uh, to get on the Forbes 400 list. So you were front <laughs> on the front lines of all of those uh, allegations uh, that, that he made about what he really had. All right. Glad to have both of you with me. So, Harry, here he is admitting that uh, he doesn't have what he says he had. Yeah, he's in he's in some real trouble now. What the appeals court did today was to say, look, you're appealing the case. You'll get one day to have your day in court on the appeal. But in the meantime, you're going to have to comply with parts of the judgment. And one of the parts the judge said he was going to have to comply with was the payment of the $454 million. Which is standard in a case like this, right? That you would have to do that. Absolutely. You can either pay it or you can get a bond. And, you know, there are some issues with getting a bond, but you have to essentially put something up. You can't just say to the court, trust me, I'll be good for this money. That's just not how it works for him or for anyone. Right. So he's being treated just like everybody else. That's right. So, Jonathan, um, you know, I know you're not surprised by the situation, probably, and the outcome here. You know, we had said he had liquid assets up to $600 million. Now he says only $100 million. Um, so looking at the properties that he has, and they say they may have to sell them, um, Doral, uh, Bloomberg values at $305 million, 40 Wall Street, nearly 300, Mar-a-Lago, uh, nearly a quarter billion dollars. Do you really think, Jonathan, that Trump will be forced to sell any of these properties 
to come up with the money by the deadline next month. And I will point out that a sale of a property like any of those in a month is, uh, you know, that that is a, an unprecedented thing. Yeah, it is a fire sale and it is a fire sale that's taking place with interest rates almost tripled what they were three years ago. So a lot of the cash flow that, 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 that Forbes and others have estimated these properties are worth and turning up are based upon an assessment that is probably dated and a cash flow that doesn't exist today. I, I do believe that he's going to be forced to come up with money. But my sense is, Aaron, is that he is going to push this to uh, he's going to make them make him do it. He his whole career has been a shell game of avoiding accountability. Um, and he is going to you know, it, it's, it's going to be much harder for the courts to seize and sell this property and take longer than him coming in. So he's not going to cooperate in my view. I do not see him selling the properties and coming up with this. I see him saying, how dare you make me do this? Hmm. You know, I'm not, the, I, I don't need, I don't operate like this and you can't make me and I'm going to appeal it and you're going to lose and you can't make me. So like a child basically who's uh, <laughs> refusing to, okay. Which is, you know, just to, to Harry, to put an explanation point on that. Yeah. That's incredible to hear, right? Because this, this exactly Jonathan's describing it, like a child. But this is reality. This is a court. This is the rule of law. This is how it works in this country. Yep. Is it possible that he can just be like, oh, well, it just doesn't apply to me. Make I, me? I don't think that'll happen. One of three things I think will happen. One of them is what we were just discussing. He'll say, I'm not going to post the bond, in which case the attorney general will have to start a series of lawsuits to essentially uh, collect on the, um, the judgment by taking his properties. But that takes time and it that's takes effort. If you're the attorney general, that's not really what you want to do. You would rather him post the bond with a normal, the way any normal corporation or person would. But the bond companies may not want to do that. They may view him as a credit risk. Wow. So, so then what happens? Well, either he gets a bond or he pays the money himself or the attorney general will levy uh, against his property. The other possibility is there could be some small delay, either from a court or the attorney general. Right. But that, won't, that delay won't take him to the end of the appeal, which could be months away. All right. So he plays the delay, the delay I, game here. Jonathan, you know what's interesting? You talk about Trump's net worth and how he, you say, lied to you about it over the years. He actually called you in the famous John Barron call. Right. When when he falsely claimed that Donald Trump owned all of his father's assets, uh, he was trying to inflate his net worth to make the Forbes 400 list. So that's the context of this conversation that you had. Um, <laughs> uh, so this guy, John Barron, calls you. Let me play it. Hey, what's your first name, John? John, John Barron. Well, most of the assets have been consolidated to Mr. Trump, you know, because you have down Fred Trump. And, and, and I'd like to talk to you off the record, if I can, just to make your thing easier. I think you can really use Donald Trump now, and, and you can uh, just consolidate. I think last year somebody showed me the article, and I think you had 200 and 200. And really, it's been pretty well consolidated now, for the most part. Uh, 200 and 200 is 400. So he's, it, it, I mean, <laughs> I didn't even know everyone would know that's his voice. This is well before AI. So um, you knew it was him. <laughs> you knew that it was, uh, that this was him pretending to be somebody else. 
Um, I did not know, Lucian. No one has ever tried this before. Nobody else ever gamed us. No one would pose as their PR person suggesting they're going to tell you what the truth was about their, you know, the, the relationship between them and who. In fact, Trump didn't have any of his father's assets until 12 years later when his father died. I mean, he literally had zero. He was worth less than $10 million when we put him up there at 400 million. He is, he is, he, he, and I also want to say in 1989, he sent a letter to Forbes that I thought was really interesting in trying to inflate his net worth before he went bankrupt, when he was actually bankrupt, saying he had $700 million in marketable securities. That's very similar to the $400 million that he told the court in his deposition, or $600 million he claimed to have right now or believe he had. In that case, that was money that flowed through his account for one week to finance in junk bonds the Taj Mahal Hotel. And so he had an accountant literally write a letter about the money that was there that one week, even though it was never there again. And so I think the 400 million that everyone says, well, wait, I thought he had 400 million. He never had it to begin with. It was working capital for loans right. and stuff. And it was fiction. But I do want to say that I do think Letitia James and the New York State Court will take his $100 million in cash. The first thing they will do is take all the liquid assets. And because this is in receivership right now and carefully, he, he's not going to be able to funnel out. So they'll get that $100 million first, and that will be the beginning of the, of the cloud. Just want to say it's, it's going to take time to collect, um, yeah. and it's going to cause a tremendous ego you know, collapse um, because he is probably not a billionaire, and it's and and he's been avoiding the transparency around his fraud uh, until now, and this will likely bring that about. All right, thank you both very much. I appreciate it, Jonathan Harry. And next, we now have the results of President Biden's physical today. Just coming out, his doctor saying Biden is healthy, active, robust, and fit for duty. But there is something that stands out to Dr. Reiner. He'll be next. Plus, leaked Russian intelligence documents reveal Putin can resort to using a nuclear weapon just to make his Navy, quote, more effective. The reporter who broke this story will be out front. And we've got more breaking news tonight. This is just the kind of night it is. The White House releasing just now the results of President Biden's physical exam. Now, the president's doctor wrote in a report that Biden is, quote, healthy, active, robust, and continued to say that he is, quote, fit for duty, noting that the president's gait remains stiff, again here I'm quoting, but has not worsened since last year, blaming that stiffness on, quote, degenerative wear and tear of his spine. Now, all of that is very clear, black and white and very clear. But one thing that was not in the report was a cognitive test. The White House says the doctor decided Biden did not need one. Out front now, Dr. Donaldson Reiner, CNN medical analyst who advised the White House medical team under President George W. Bush. So, uh, you know, you've been in these situations before of, of how to handle this information, these physicals and their release. You've looked at this report by the president's longtime doctor, a doctor by the name of Kevin O'Connor. I know you know him well. What stands out to you, Dr. Reiner? Well, first of all, it's a incredibly comprehensive uh, report. It involved about 10 consultants. Uh, it's the kind of massive evaluation that the White House is really good at doing. And overall, you know, it speaks to the stability of, of the president, you know, compared to his evaluation uh, last year. Uh, the, the one change is that he now uh, is being treated for sleep apnea, a very common uh, disorder. Uh, a lot of people know somebody who uses a machine at night to provide this sort of positive airway pressure to keep 
you basically from waking up multiple times during the night. And, and Dr. Yeah. O'Connor reported that the president is now using that. But obviously, you know, the the one element that is not in the report is sort of the much, much discussed uh, cognitive exam. But, you know, I've known Kevin, uh, Dr. O'Connor, for over 15 years. And before he came to the White House, he was a Delta Force Army doctor. And he cannot be bullied. And uh, I know Kevin. And if he doesn't feel like a cognitive exam is warranted, it doesn't matter how many people yell in his ear. He will not, he will not do that. The converse is also true. If he, if he felt that a cognitive exam was warranted, uh, no number of uh, you know, political consultants uh, screaming at him would uh, dissuade him from doing it. So uh, my strong suspicion is that he did not perform a cognitive exam because he did not believe the president needed it. Which so is exactly what they said. Right. I mean, so, yeah. so, you know, you've got ABC polls saying 86% of voters say he's too old to serve another term. Obviously, when you read through what was put out by this doctor, you know, it doesn't support that. I mean, right? I mean, even with the gate acknowledging, right. yes, it's stiff, but it's not more stiff than it has been given a reason for it, right? Uh, and, and, and you are making it clear that, that you, you know, believe and trust this doctor when he says he didn't need a cognitive exam. So, you know, do you... Do you think they should have just done one because of the political environment? Right. So, so there's a medical reason to do, to do an exam, and there's a political reason. You know, the president's physician doesn't see him, you know, twice a year like, like I see a patient. He sees him every single day. He, posi- he positions himself every morning in a way that he can walk with the president and talk to him for a few minutes. So that gives him a very sort of continuous evaluation of the president. And Dr. O'Connor apparently felt there was absolutely no indication, either f- either his own observation or yeah. that up from the president. But the other uh, reason to do a cognitive exam, which has nothing to do with medicine, is a political. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I would have done that just to, to quell the, the shouting and to, to basically, you know, uh, just take that off the table. But Kevin, again, is sticking to the medicine, so he didn't do it. Uh, I'm not sure I would have necessarily followed that path, but I respect him for sticking to his guns. All right. Well, Dr. Reiner, I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's great to see you. Thank you, Aaron. And next, leaked classified documents coming from Russia. These are leaked documents, and they tonight reveal what gives Putin the okay to use a nuclear weapon. And the reasons are chilling. The bar is a lot lower than people would have thought. The reporter who broke the story is next. Plus, Alexei Navalny's wife with a message for Putin tonight. Let her husband's supporters pay their respects or risk violence. We're in Moscow next. Tonight, leaked Russian military files show just how quickly Putin would resort to using tactical nuclear weapons. The Financial Times has obtained highly secretive classified Russian intelligence, showing Putin's eagerness to use a nuclear weapon even over non-essential matters. The documents show that Russia would use the devastating weapon simply to stop, quote, aggression, as Russia defines it. Out front now, the reporter who broke the story, Max Seddon, the Moscow bureau chief for the Financial Times. And Max, I'm really glad to see you again. Look, it's an alarming report, uh, and you've seen these documents. So what more can you share about Putin's threshold to use a tactical nuclear weapon? Well, so the way that Russia defines uh, the criteria at which it might use nuclear weapons, that's either in, in response to, to being to being targeted or uh, if, if uh, the existence of the state is a threat. And they've never really said what that means. And what you see from, from these documents that 
that, that we managed to, to look at is really that is terrifyingly low. It's uh, basically if Russia doesn't feel that uh, they, they have won the first stage of any sort of conflict with, with a major power, then they might use tactical nuclear weapons to do what they call soberize or, or scare the adversary into stopping their, their attack on, on Russia. So it's basically getting the bloody nose in the first stage of a conflict that might be enough. And they've trained uh, their, their military in some scenarios to potentially be ready for Putin to give that order. So when you went through some of the scenarios that could trigger the use of nuclear weapons, um, you know, you, you said someone invades Russia. OK, fine. Um, but then uh, there's there's other things you report on in the again, in these documents that you obtained um, that, you know, they could use nukes to if, to, quote, stop aggression or even in the instance, Max, you report to make Russia's Navy, quote, more effective. I mean, talk about a subjective thing and what appears to be, I mean, an incredibly low bar. Well, the real the real bar is uh, either higher or lower than that, because uh, something that these documents make make clear, and this is also something that's uh, that Russia doesn't hide the the sole authority for ordering a nuclear strike, be it with a smaller tactical nuclear weapon or a larger strategic one, that belongs to Vladimir Putin alone. And what we see is that he he could order uh, something at the the low threshold that is described in the documents that we saw, but he could do that at an even lower threshold or the higher threshold. And yeah. the this has been an issue ever ever since the uh, full scale invasion of Ukraine started uh, two two years ago. Is that it's very hard to get into Putin's head. We don't really know what what he's thinking, and that has been something that has really uh, given given pause to Western powers in in arming Ukraine because the worry is that. With, with these low thresholds that uh, the, the Putin could suddenly decide that a line has been crossed and then it might be too late. Right. It's just the, the, the absolute authority that he has, the absolute power. Uh, Max, in some senses, countries prepare for a lot of things that, that seem counterintuitive or uh, uh, that might be surprising. And maybe this goes in that category. But nonetheless, I know the documents that you obtained show the scenarios of an invasion uh, of Russia by China. China obviously is a, is a huge partner for Russia right now and providing a lot of, of weaponry and support for Putin's uh, war in Ukraine. But yet in the document, uh, you see uh, plans uh, for what they would do if invaded by China. What do you read into that? Well, I think I think we have to be clear that the these documents, they date from 2008 to 2014. And especially since Xi Jinping took power in 2012, Russia and China have become much, much closer. Russia has abandoned some of the skepticism on the military side. There is some military cooperation. It is uh, still still comparatively limited. But but even if it's hard to, to picture a Chinese invasion of, of Russia right now, it's it's quite clear that, uh, you know, if you speak to experts who who study the, the Russian military and uh, you compare these exercises to exercises that we know the Russian military still does, they they still yeah. view China as a threat. Otherwise, they wouldn't store nuclear nuclear weapons, have have units in the Far East trained just as recently as November. They had an exercise near near the Chinese border with missiles that can only hit, hit China. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out what the threat they're training for there is. All right. Well, Max, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, you staying up late and, and sharing that. I hope everyone will read the full story. It's really incredible reporting. Thank you. Thanks so much. And also tonight, Alexei Navalny's funeral. It will be Friday at a cemetery in Moscow, according to his spokesperson. And now Yulia Navalnaya, who has not shied away from the spotlight in the 12 days since her husband's death, is warning that the memorial service could turn violent if police crack down on attendees. Matthew Chance is out front tonight in Moscow. 
Before Europe's Parliament, the widow of Alexei Navalny is continuing his stand, urging lawmakers to treat the Kremlin as a criminal gang, to investigate its financial dealings and punish the financiers it employs. You cannot hurt Putin with another resolution or another set of sanctions. That is no different from the previous ones. You cannot defeat him by thinking he is a man of principle who has morals and rules. He is not like that, and Alexei realized that a long time ago. The Kremlin has yet to comment on the remarks, but tonight Russia's president is paying his last respects. But not to Alexei Navalny. This the funeral of a loyal Supreme Court judge who passed away last week. Navalny's team say the burial of the late opposition leader will take place on Friday amid a struggle to find a venue and Putin is unlikely to attend. Nor are his bereaved family. Yulia Navalnaya has already been threatened with jail on pro-Kremlin media and even laying her husband to rest on Friday, she told the EU Parliament, may provoke a crackdown. The funeral will take place the day after tomorrow. And I'm not sure yet whether it will be peaceful or whether the police will arrest those who have come to say goodbye to my husband. Already, human rights groups say hundreds have been detained across Russia at makeshift memorials set up after Navalny's sudden death in a notorious Arctic penal colony earlier this month. His body was then withheld, say Navalny's team, what his widow calls an abuse that prolonged the family's agony. He was starved in a tiny stone cell, cut off from the outside world and denied visits phone calls, and then even letters. And then they killed him. Even after that, they abused his body and abused his mother. The Kremlin denies allegations of wrongdoing and any responsibility for Navalny's death. Near the Kremlin, meanwhile, Western ambassadors have been remembering the loss of another Russian opposition leader. Not Navalny, but Boris Nemtsov, gunned down here back in 2015. The Kremlin denies any involvement in this killing too. But anyone who takes on Russia's opposition mantle knows they're taking a huge risk. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.